and welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's festive edition, we ask Otrium Sustainability Lead Marlott Kimberan whether we'll be having sustainable festive fashion this year. All Matters' CEO Gita dahlberg Larson explores how brands with sustainability built in can scale ethically in 2022 and beyond. And Diversity and Sustainability co-founder Heather Mack outlines how we can all build a more inclusive and equitable profession in the new year. Hello and a very warm welcome to the ED Sustainable Business Covered podcast for our special annual Christmas edition. I'm ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and this is normally the part in the Christmas special where we're all in the office. Um, some sleigh bells come in, um, held by content editor Matt Mace and content director Luke Nichols. Um, but alas, with COP26 having kept all of us working day and night for most of November, we all now have quite a lot of time in lieu to claim, and the boys have chosen to claim their time now. So it is just me sitting here alone at home with my mince pies and my Yule log uh, and my vinyl copy of Last Christmas by Wham. Uh, I can only imagine that the boys are both off watching a Muppet's Christmas Carol and enjoying copious amounts of mulled wine while I'm here working hard to bring you this podcast. Um, anything to distract from what's happening in Downing Street at the moment, I think. But not to worry, because while Matt and Luke are putting their slippers up, I've been busy conducting three end-of-year interviews with great guest speakers, all of whom are new to the podcast. Each talks has that feeling of reflection on the year gone um, and looking forward to the new year to come, which is a mode that I know a lot of us are slipping into at the moment, um, whether permanently or in between frantically checking on with whether the office party is going ahead what's happening with the school performance um, and will we ever make it to the mythical front of the line at the post office. Um, And of course a lot of us in this space are also trying to have a more sustainable festive season just as we are trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle the year round. While we're normally thinking about things like walking and cycling, packing our reusable coffee cups and mending things around the house, there are now additional questions about the greenest festive foods to serve and what kind of tree we should get Um, and which crackers and which wrapping papers are recyclable, and yeah, the list goes on. Of course, choosing what to gift is another big consideration, and one that's becoming mainstream. Globally, Etsy has reported a 48% year-on-year increase in searches for eco-friendly gifts, sustainable gift ideas, and biodegradable gifting items. Accenture has stated that it will probably be less of a materialistic holiday and more of a human-centric one for a lot of us. So with this in mind, our first guest is from an organisation that's working to improve the sustainability of a sector that is high in emissions, high in waste, uh, high risk for social insustainability, but also often high on our wish list at this time of year, and that is the fashion sector. Our first guest is Otrium Sustainability Lead, Marlott Kiveran. For those who aren't aware, Otrium is a digital platform that helps brands to sell their unsold inventory and to go forward better forecasting demand, so that reduces waste in a sort of dual approach. The business now sells in dozens of markets across the world to more than 3 million individual users, and brands like Adidas, Asics and Theory are using it. So without further ado, let's get into that interview with Marla in full. 
Yes, hello, Marlo. It's such a delight to have you on our podcast today. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. It's a busy yeah, it's Sorry. Busy for you guys. Yes, the last quarter is always crazy in retail. So uh, it's uh, it's busy, but in a good way. Yeah, I definitely am not envying anyone that's in retail um, at, the, at the moment, but equally an exciting time um, for you guys. And whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I'm dialing in from Amsterdam, from our uh, hub at the Houthavens. Um, yeah, being in this little room to make sure the sound is uh, is OK to listen to. Great. Well, we can hear you loud and clear. And if it's that small, I won't keep you too long on the podcast today. Um, I think it'd be great to start with an introduction to to Otrium and to to the brand um, as as means of a scene setter. So I've been fully briefed on this, but people listening might not be be aware of you guys. Yeah, so uh, Otrium is an online marketplace, actually. So we sell unsold inventory of fashion brands. Uh, as a consumer, you can find us. We have an app and we're basically a fashion retailer as you know them. So uh, a personalized way of browsing through garments. Um, but then, yeah, having unsold inventory instead of new items. So it's... um. A premium experience but we're at the same time trying to solve an industry issue being waste in the in the fashion industry. Great and I understand that this is a really fast growing um, enterprise as well with lots of funding being raised and big expansions going on at the moment. Yes definitely so uh, we raised a series C last March uh, and that enabled us to open up shop in the US which is going great. And um, yeah, it's it's been such a, a nice ride being part of the company. It's going really well and um, we're doing great on our, our purpose to make sure that all clothing is worn. Great. Um, and now I've been working in this space for several years. And while we do sustainability in all sectors, fashion and retail are sort of my my babies. I love looking into them. It's what really got me into sustainability because it's such a complex um, value chain with a multitude of issues and opportunities for for innovation but for people that might not have been looking into that you talked about um, getting a new home and making sure that all clothing goes worn um, so for people that maybe aren't looking into the inner workings of the fashion industry um, it'd be good to hear about why brands are selling off excess industry at super low stock to buyers or even destroying some of their stock without a solution like the one that Otrium's offering. Yes yeah, so uh, excess inventory is still a big issue within the fashion industry. So at least six and a half to 12 percent of clothing remains unsold. Um, it's still part of the cycle of fashion where we create new trends and, and new collections a lot of times a year. And unfortunately, um, there are a lot of articles going around where we find brands to incinerate or landfill uh, clothing. And as Otrim, we were trying to help these brands in order to regain value from their excess inventory, but also to help them move away from excess inventory by taking a demand-based approach and using data and tech in order to forecast collections in a better way. 
Great, I was going to come on to that as, as well, because this is obviously a solution for the system that we have at the moment, but it'd be great if we had a world where ultimately brands made less in the first instance and, and wasted less. And you you mentioned having to sort of better forecast the, the trend cycle, but I'm presuming there's other parts moving in that. Yeah, so um, we do a couple of things basically from a brand perspective. So when we talk about Otrium, uh, a lot of people tend to think that we only serve customers and we do with our app. But in, in essence, we're trying to match supply and demand of unsold inventory. So making sure every item gets an owner in the end. Um, and we do this in multiple ways. So um, we physically receive the items from fashion brands and we polish them as we as we call it. And this means we um, we press them. We make sure they have the right product description, the right sizing um, information for our customers, but also product photography in order to make sure that we can link an item to the right new owner, basically. Um, and then we also have this thing called data made fashion, where we give insights to the fashion brands that we work with on really good selling items. And uh, we make a forecast together where we make sure that we don't end up with excess inventory. So it's a demand based approach and we try to um, incentivize this for brands to take an approach where they move away from excess and use data in tech in order to get to an, an uh, fashion industry with no access. Great, and I've heard in this space demand based a lot this year with things like supply chain disruption amid, amid COVID. So a lot of brands are actually seeing success from doing things like, like pre-order or if it's a t-shirt, you can just print to order so you can have the shirts, but then put the specific design um, on the specific size. So it's really interesting to see how all these innovations are coming together. Um, and you mentioned as well that this has been a time where there's a lot in the media about brands destroying merchandise. So a few years ago, definitely saw some headlines about Burberry. Um, this year, um, definitely saw saw the stories about Coach and the handbags, which had like pen marks on them and slashed up. Um, and there's some great accounts online like Trashwalker um, bringing attention to these stories. So do you think stories like like this will make people consider sustainability more when they're looking at maybe garments and accessories for, for the festive season? Yes, I think uh, journalism is really helping to create an awareness, both from fashion brands, but also from consumers. And of course, COP26 and a lot of other uh, arising uh, conscious pushers are really helping uh, in both areas to get more awareness around sustainability in general, but also the value of items that are unvalued, seen as unvalued up to this point. And I think that's a great improvement. And then there's, of course, a, lo a law and, and legislation coming around extended producer responsibility, which I'm sure will also be helping us into the right direction. Um, I think what is very important is that we move away from the idea of waste, but still trying to make the best of the items that we have. So um, and an example here at Otrim is we, of course, have also uh, e-commerce returns. We are an online platform. Um, and when an item comes in damaged, we have uh, a refurbishment team that is suing on a button or making sure that the item is going back into an as new 
status and we can resell it again on our platform. And I think this shift of, of uh, mindset, uh, seeing value in items that you initially would not, is very, very important. Great. And I'm seeing a lot of that anecdotally, to be honest, a lot of people looking for advice on how to gift use or how to gift experiences as much as we're seeing people saying, oh, well, Christmas was in lockdown in the UK last year. Let's go big and buy loads of new stuff. Definitely seeing more. And as as you say, it's not just the stories that are coming up about Fashion Week. There just seems to be higher general awareness with things like COP26 and climate tabs on, on news websites. So, yes, I think there is a lot of a lot of different aspects driving more awareness, such as COP26, but also journalism and new laws and legislations that are coming. Um, and what we see in our own customer base is that three out of four customers really value sustainability. And one third of our customers is actually driven by sustainability, sustainability or, or consciousness. Um, by purchasing something that was already made instead of something completely new. Great. And I think that, yeah, we've, we've seen so many trend reports this year about um, alternative fashion um, business models. And I was actually on a panel call with Mike Barry at M&S this week, and he was saying that essentially systems change is coming for fashion, um, much in the same way that it has been for food, just slightly slower. Um, so lots to look forward to for a sustainable fashion Christmas and New Year. Um, so thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. Thank you for letting me join. It's super exciting to be here as I'm a, yeah, a listener of the ED podcast for a long, long time. Thanks once again to Marlott for her time and for her insight there. Um, lots of food for thought, lots of evolution still underway in fashion in the name of sustainability this year and lots to look forward to for 2022 by the looks of things. I'm going to move swiftly on to our second guest speaker for this episode of the ED podcast, um, another woman from another rapidly scaling business with sustainability built into its business model. I had a virtual coffee earlier this week with All Matters' Chief Executive Officer, Gita darberg Larsen, who's based in Denmark. All Matters is a brand that started out solely selling menstrual cups, an alternative to pads and tampons that obviously is an alternative that reduces waste and that is reusable. All Matters is now selling other low-waste personal care products that reduce water use and shipping emissions, and it's scaling up its work in the social sustainability space too with its work to help tackle period poverty. So in this interview, Gita and I talk about what it's like to be a business trying to change consumer behaviours and to scale sustainably against the backdrop of the ongoing pandemic. So I hope you enjoy that chat as much as I enjoy conducting it. Yes, good morning, Gita. It is a delight to have you on the Christmas episode of the podcast. How are you today? <laughs> good morning and thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Great. And whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Um, I'm uh, just outside of Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, how lovely. I, should, yes. I assume that it's very festive. <laughs> it is, but also very cold and windy right now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. the so, same here as yeah. well. We're, well. I'm recording this. By the time you hear this, this will have passed, but we're in the middle um, of the storm that has hit the UK. We're back round to, to B on the alphabet of storms. So, <laughs> um, yeah, lots of lots of power cuts and for people. Yeah in Ireland lots of uh, roof tiles off and trampolines rolling down oh, no. the street. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Not um, that bad here though. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time. And we can, yeah, hide away indoors and listen to podcasts instead. Yeah. Um, so I think it would be good to start with. So I've obviously been briefed on all things, all matters. Um, but for those listening that might not be aware, um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your brand's backstory. Yes, absolutely. So Organicop, as we were called just until recently, uh, was a company founded in 2012 in Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, and we are uh, or were a menstrual cup company. Um, and it all kick-started back in 2012. Um, there was an article in a Danish uh, daily newspaper um, about menstrual cups. Um, and all the benefits about the menstrual cup. And at that time, not many people knew about menstrual cups and there were only a few brands on the market. And um, my um, my business partner, William, uh, was already in product design and, and sustainable packaging and read this news, uh, newspaper article and, and really found it quite intriguing that uh, one thing was the menstrual cup, but also that no innovations had really happened in 50 years within period uh, products. So he uh, decided to, to start the company in 2012 and designed this high quality menstrual cup that is uh, was organic cup and also the sustainable packaging uh, that we actually use today. We haven't made much uh, changes to it. It's really sustainable recycled carton. So it really stands out from a lot of the other uh, cup brands on, on the market. And then I joined in, in the beginning of 2016. I joined the company. I had been in, in corporate uh, business for, for 20 years and the past 15 years uh, with L'Oreal um, as a commercial director and marketing director. But I joined um, as co-owner and commercial director. And my main <laughs> task was really to get the information um uh, about menstrual cups out to to the consumer make them understand the benefits of it and and uh, really get the cups into retail um we i really wanted to make the menstrual cups the third natural choice uh, and have them stand on the shelf next to pads and tampons uh, so that was my main <laughs> main goal and our values were, were really clear. We wanted to make the cups accessible and we wanted to make a change on a personal, cultural and social level because there's so much uh, that you can do with these menstrual cups to fight period poverty, fight period shame and so on. And then it really enables people to, to make a sustainable choice in their everyday life uh, instead of using disposable pads and tampons that you throw out every month and you generate a lot of waste that goes into landfills, into the oceans, into the beaches. You can just use every usable uh, menstrual cup for years and years. So, so yeah, we set out to, to do that. And um, today we are um, retailed in, in more than 40 countries and in more than 7,000 retailers uh, across drugstores, pharmacies, zero waste stores and so on. Um, and then just recently in September, we uh, went through a brand transition to All Matters. Um, we uh, did see with the cup 
how small actions can really have a big impact. And we did plan for a long time to launch new products as well that can make a difference in your everyday life. Um, so we have actually moved now from being a cup company only to a sustainable care company. And we have launched um, new innovative products um, that are, are powder to foam uh, personal care products that are powder based so without water because in in most personal care products uh, you have up to 90% water that you just transport uh, around the world um, and it's often packed in in single use plastics so we decided to do this powder based uh, formula and and designed a, a reusable um, bottle uh, that and then you just mix the products at home so that has sort of been the kickstart from for our transition into to um, to all matters. Mm. Yeah. And and you mentioned that in 2012 and even 2016 the market was very different. Like this wasn't really a big thing that people had heard of. Um, and now we've seen more and more reusable, refillable products and innovative personal care products, like you mentioned, so solids or or powders or. Or tablets, um, and yeah. I wanted to get get your view on what's it's what it's been like to be trying to get that behaviour change sort of in the past eighteen months or so. I've <laughs> like just anecdotally seen that a lot of people are more willing to try this sort of thing because they're at home yeah. um, more. So what what's it been like to try and get that that behaviour and cultural change that you need for the products um, recently? Yeah, but it's it's been extremely interesting to see and it has been a big opportunity for for our company because as you say there there is a change or there has been a change in consumer behavior definitely towards more um sustainable uh, towards more ethical products and and people are just spending so much time at home now uh, especially during the lockdowns um so you actually must get, also get to see uh, how much waste you produce in your household. Uh, for me personally, I, I think it's been really an eye-opener to see how much plastic we actually gather together as a family. And, and I've already made uh, improvements in my own household. But people are really looking into to, to products that can both improve their health and and the environment and that's also including period products to to become more like use more reusable products um, and i think people are also spending more time online uh, investigating new products new opportunities and and for us it's been really um really good because we we already have a strong digital presence and 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 a big community of of really loyal uh, engaged consumers and we can see that we have we have seen a growth in our community during the past 18 months two years people are really looking for information they're looking for alternatives uh, education um so yeah it's been really interesting and and but luckily, we haven't had to change much in our company. It's we 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 have the we have the company that we started out in 2012 with the same values. Um, uh, since the beginning, we have wanted to help people live more consciously and more sustainably. So, and we have sustainable packaging, sustainable products. So, so we have been just building. Uh, on on what we already had and and uh, been able to to focus on product development, new products during this uh, time of pandemic, um, new products that are sustainable and also help people live a conscious life. 
uh, we've been able to continue our work to fight period poverty that we've also been doing from the beginning of the since we started the company uh, working with NGOs giving free cups donations and we've also been been able to do that in the UK during uh, the pandemic also uh, donating cups to the NHS to to the hospital staff and and so on so so we have been been focusing on on that and also been focusing on um, submitting our B Corp registration also again another step in our impact journey you can say to to ensure our social and environmental performance so it has been a challenging time but also a very interesting uh, time for us as a company yeah it looks like the positioning is obviously different for different companies and depending on things like yeah. where you operate what what charitable giving you have going on whether you need people to be on site and what geographies you're in and what lockdown restrictions there yes. are it's all, it's all different but I am seeing a lot of businesses now are looking to sustainability as like not an add-on but something that needs to be embedded to have that resilience I can absolutely. see <laughs> yeah absolutely it's true um great and and it all sounds you mentioned that yeah this is essentially the same company as when it was set up um, but as you say, there's new products coming, new designs, new work streams on things like B Corp. Um, so obviously it's clear that the business has big plans for the for the future. Um, and I'm sure we'll have listeners coming in for brands that are looking to scale up and plan for the future, mm. but make sure that they stay sustainable and that they yeah. stay true yeah. um, to their ethos. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how that can be done for yourself um, and what learnings um, you would give to others for, for the new year and beyond as well. Yeah. I, I think as a as a startup company moving to becoming a scale up company, I think it's extremely important that you as a startup have defined your mission and your values as a as a company. Um and and, and we did that um from the very beginning with Organic Up and our matters. Um and we stay true to them. I think that's super important as you grow that you stay true to to the values you have as a company and and that you stay consistent and you stay honest and you stay transparent. Um, because I think today Consumers are not only looking for sustainable products, they are also looking behind the products and looking at the company behind the products uh, and how ethical are they, what is the behavior of the company and so So being honest, being transparent all the way through, I think is super important when you scale up. Um, and then as you grow as a company, I think the team is ex extremely important that you get the right team members on board, but also that the team that you have uh, sort of live the um, the company mission and the values and everybody works uh, towards a common goal and it can be challenging I think as as you grow as an organization you get more people in the team become becomes more complex you might get team team leaders and so how do you make sure that the values and and sort of the the soul of the company drizzles down to everybody I think that's that's sort of uh, really, really important uh, if you want to stay sustainable and ethical when you grow as well. Um, and I can also say for, for us, as we have been using the time now, as I said, for new product development. And I think it's also, if you want to stay sustainable as a company, you also have to make a decision and a choice of 
how do you want to grow and and do you do the the new product development do you keep it in-house do you outsource it how much can you outsource to still be in control um of, of your brand and for for we have been developing the new personal care, but we are also coming out with period underwear in the beginning of of the new new year. And we have decided to to keep the uh, the product development in um, in house mostly. And we've done that to be really in control of the the manufacturers, the ingredients, and everything. Um, but it also means that new product development can take longer than if you outsource it. So it's, I think it's really a choice, but for us, it was really important to stay true, again, to our values, to stay sustainable all through the value uh, chain and the supply chain. Um, yeah, and I think I think it's, if we manage to stay true to, to, uh, to all matters and all the, and also as long as we keep our ethos um, intact as a company and we have the right people on board, um, then I really believe that as a brand, you have a <clears throat> huge growth potential and, and you can continue to, to scale up. Mm, and I, su I suppose that B Corp is a mark of that in a way, because you have to recertify um, every three years and you have to be acting across a whole range of, of different issues. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a huge work, but we've decided that this, this is a, a registration that is uh, super important for us as a company and and for our consumers for our business partners and retail partners i think it just shows the transparency that we want to give to our partners as a company um yeah mm. well it sounds like the new year is going to be a super exciting time for you so i look forward <laughs> to catching up with you um then but i hope you have some time off to get some r and r in the meantime <laughs> Yes, we will have some Christmas uh, holiday <laughs> and then we'll continue again with the new launches next year. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you once again to Gitta for guesting on this episode of the podcast. I'm going to take a super quick break now. So join me in part two of this episode for a chat about diversity in the sustainability profession with reflections on the events of 2020 and 2021 and some ideas on how we can all create a more inclusive and equitable space for the new year. In the meantime, now is your chance to grab a cup of coffee and perhaps a candy cane. And welcome back to the second part of this episode of Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, our festive special for Christmas 2021. In the first part of this episode, we took a look at some of the disruptive businesses working with sustainability built in. And in the second half, we're going to reflect on what the past year or so has been like in the sustainability profession, with the increased focus on DE and I in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement's work in 2020 and 2021. Um, and events like the spike in anti-Asian hate crimes amid COVID-19. I think it's fair to say that most of us already know that sustainability is not a diverse profession um, in the UK or the US at the moment, and whether that's private or public sector roles or organisations. Most professionals do not come from a working class background. They'll likely be educated to at least master's level, 
they do not report having a disability. The profession is not diverse racially or ethnically. According to SOS UK, around 3% of us working in this field in the UK identify as minority ethnic, but that's compared to about 20% of the general population. I get the sort of irony of me sitting here and recording this, so I'm a white journalist and I'm born and based in the UK. And journalism, like sustainability, is one of those professions that is accounted for in this country, mainly by white folks and mainly by middle class and upper class folks to a disproportionate extent. But in both of these professions, there are people working tirelessly to tackle these systemic issues which cause barriers to entering the profession, progressing in the profession and being satisfied in your job. Two of them are the co-founders of Diversity in Sustainability, Marie Josevich and Heather Mack. The organisation does what it says on the tin. Its mission is to equip sustainability leaders and would-be sustainability leaders from marginalised backgrounds with the skills, networks and resources they need. The end of the year is always a great time to reflect, to spotlight the great work that's being done and to think about how even more great work can be done in the new year. So I dialed Heather from Diversity and Sustainability in Canada to do just that. So I hope you enjoy our talk. Well, I guess it's good evening from me and a good good morning or perhaps lunchtime from Heather. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm good. But yeah, as I was saying before we started recording, really unprofessional not to do with this. I think the seasonal affective depression is getting to me a little bit. I have not seen one drop of sunlight today. It's uh, very dark here in the UK at the moment. And how about yourself? Yeah, it's it's pretty dark here. Dark when we get up, dark when we stop working. So I'm really looking forward to getting some sunlight as well. Yeah, it's that like Northern Hemisphere tiredness period. Yeah, of the exactly. Year, as you mentioned. So thank you for taking time out of, out of your day and to pop on to our Christmas podcast, even if we're perhaps not feeling super festive um, today in particular. Um, so I think it would be good to start off with a brief introduction to diversity and sustainability for those unfamiliar with it. Obviously, we'll be familiar here at ED, but not everyone listening will be. Sure. So as an organization, we started in June 2020. This was after George Floyd's death, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's death and Breonna Taylor's death. At the time, I had a bit of an existential crisis in terms of how I might be propagating an unjust system. So, for example, over the past 15 years or so um, that I've been working in sustainability, I've been working on responsible sourcing issues in the food and apparel sector. So if we think of commodities like cocoa, coffee and cotton, all of these continue to have issues of forced labor. And it just made me think, wasn't I just putting a Band-Aid on a wider problem? So I spent some time reflecting on that um, with my former co-founder and colleague, Marie Jersevic, um, just about how few people of color there were in the sector as we were coming up in the sector and, um, and just how few people of color there were that were leaders in the organizations that we worked in. So on top of that, um, you know, we spent some time digging into the statistics in the sector and it really became apparent um, how much communities of color were disproportionately affected by environmental and social injustices and how um, we often don't have a hand in creating the solutions to these issues. So that big question that really came to us was, you know, what is a better world and for whom? Mm. So, yeah, it was a pretty um, big question. 
we spent months and months speaking to hundreds of people and came up with our theory of change in our mission statement, and it's twofold. First, we want to equip current and future BIPOC sustainability leaders with the skills, networks, and resources to get to the sustainable and just future. And on the wider front, we also aim to be a catalyst to make our industry more inclusive. So it's it's a big mission, and uh, we're trying to make a, a system-wide change in, in the sector of sustainability. I think that, as you say, the events of 2020 really prompted a lot of people to, to think about what am I doing with my career? What's my place in these systems? And how can I um, leverage my, my influence? So really yeah a time a timely time is that a phrase um, <laughs> to be producing as you mentioned that first annual report so I have some bullet points down about this report which we covered at the time um, so you guys surveyed 1,500 sustainability professionals in the US UK and Canada um, and I wanted to to ask you what surprised you the most or what what were you what you perhaps expected so something that stood out to me is that um, seven in ten of the white women that were surveyed say yes I work directly with at least one other white woman in my organization or network mm -hmm. directly um, but less than one quarter of black professionals and one third of South Asian professionals said they regularly see someone who looks like them in their network so let alone on that in-house basis but I don't mm -hmm. know if that surprised you or if you would pull out something else. Yeah there were a few interesting things I think for me you know, it it validated what I'd always known and seen anecdotally. So I, I felt like that was eye opening in itself. So for me, I think some of the really interesting things were just, you know, how incredibly elite sustainability is. So if we look at uh, social mobility, 77% come from a middle class or upper class background and 90% of people have an advanced degree. So something like 62% had a master's degree. So that that's a really high barrier to entry uh, for working in sustainability when this affects everyone, right? Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think another really interesting thing in the report was just looking at you know, uh, social mobility and the, the sectors that people end up working in. So uh, what we found in our research were that uh, people that come from a materially poor background, uh, working class backgrounds, um, they, they featured more in government and nonprofit roles, uh, middle and upper class uh, backgrounds in, in more corporate roles. So that was really interesting to see. Um, something else that was really interesting was just looking at the diversity of younger people coming into the sector. And so what we saw were that 54% of the people between 18 to 24 were people of color compared to 23% um, of those aged 55 to 64. And you could see this, this line basically of how the population was changing. And so there's some big implications in terms of how we recruit and how we engage people in our organizations. Um, and then I think another interesting point, there's just so many in there, were that only 52% of people said that their organizations were putting their words into action on equity, diversity, and inclusion. So that means that half aren't. So there's, there's definitely a lot of work to be done on that front. And as this is our first survey, we're really looking forward to uh, running it again in a few years time to see how things have progressed. Great. I wanted to touch on that last 
last bit. So as you mentioned, so around half of the people surveyed essentially said, well, they're not walking the talk um, and they're probably doing a lot more talking um, in the in the current climate. So I wanted to get your view on what businesses can do better as we look for the for the new year. And as as we as you have said, so the younger cohort is definitely more diverse. And I don't know if you've seen this in the US and Canada, but from where I am in the UK, definitely seeing a lot of sustainability teams that we regularly contact um, adding members. So expanding because they've set a net zero target, for example, and and now need to deliver that. So they need some some more entry level or, or mid level roles. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely seeing that here, too. It's just been, I think, with the increase in the investor community, there's been a lot more um, demand for, say, reporting. And as you say, all these net zero targets, I think, yes, it's 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 just like expanding exponentially <laughs> more than I've seen in a long time. Um, but I, to your point and, and question about what can they do for next year, um, I, I think if I set the context a little bit, for a long time, I think sustainability organizations have benefited from a halo effect and not really turning the spotlight on themselves in terms of um, equity and inclusion. I think there were a few NGOs over the past few years that have had some harsh awakenings um, in terms of their history or, or current practices in, in conservation. And I think uh, they've been very active in making themselves more inclusive and more attractive to marginalized groups. I think uh, very large companies have also been quite active on this file for a while since they've had the infrastructure in place for uh, decades in some cases. Uh, whereas I think uh, most other organizations, their efforts are just starting. So, um, you know, there's some that are more ahead than our others. And uh, I, I think there's a few actions that they can take. So first would be to do that inner work, just looking at their histories, how their business model might be tied to extraction and um, the legacy of colonialism looking at how people relate with one another and how they're living out the values of the organization. So really taking that time to be um, reflective and vulnerable and humble. I think another one is just going beyond who they're used to for hiring and for events and just also encouraging them to look at uh, untraditional candidates or even looking at who's within the organization and, and who might who might uh, be promoted and developed further. Um, I, I think I've heard a lot from organizations and people about, you know, we want to hire people, uh, but they haven't really been focused on developing the people already there. I think another thing uh, that will be important is just looking at how organizations engage with communities, how they conduct projects and stakeholder engagement, and actually taking the time to go beyond the surface to check off a box and, and um, really doing that deep engagement and relationship building over time. And I think one last thing is uh, post-pandemic, what we found too is that among um, marginalized communities, this notion of flexible working and it helping with um, mental health has, has been something that's been really a, a good development. So I think as we return to work, uh, maintaining some semblance of flexible working will be really helpful uh, for, for retention and, and engagement. So those are just a few recommendations and, and the report actually has a lot of other recommendations, 
but in 2022, we'll actually be facilitating um, these inclusion blueprint dialogues, and we're going to dig into some of the information further and provide more detailed recommendations for different parts of the sustainability sector, whether it's recruitment agencies or leaders of organizations or um, people of color within organizations as well. So we'll have that to look forward to in 2022 as well. Great. Well, I'll keep an eye out for those. I realize that I've asked a question that, yeah, definitely needs work at all those different um, parts of the system. And it, it's what you said, isn't it, that it can't be. a. You said this at the beginning of our talk. You said, um, yeah, it can't be a plaster. It has to be a more strategic and embedded um, look at what we're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Great. Well, Heather, I think that's a good note to end on. So I will let you go and enjoy the rest of your day and your Christmas. Um, thank <laughs> you so much for your time on the podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. You too. Heather was our third and final guest for this episode. So it's about time to wrap it up for today and indeed for the rest of 2021 here at ED. Thank you all so much for listening along to our podcast this year. So I'm, I was reflecting on the podcast itself, really, when writing this script and We've had a record three podcast streams this year, uh, Sustainable Business Covered, Net Zero Business and our new one, COP26 Covered, which was our daily show during the climate conference. So it's been a whirlwind year for these exclusive interviews, listener quizzes and other audio content. So just a few of the places that we've been. We've gone to Glasgow to report live from COP26. We've covered Climate Week NYC. We covered the UK's first Great Big Green Week. We dived into net zero strategies, including those from businesses and universities. We've been in boats, museums, supermarkets, warehouses, store cupboards. And of course, we've been reporting from home where necessary during lockdown. So a big thank you to all of you listening to us on that journey, as well as to all of our guests and our sponsors that have been on this year. If you've enjoyed today's episode, and I really hope you have, don't forget to subscribe to the ED podcast. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or Google, so we should be wherever you get your podcasts. So if you aren't already signed up, now is your chance to do that. Also, quickly before I go, I want to make you all aware that our Sustainability Leaders Forum and Awards are now less than two months away. They both take place in London. The forum is February 1st and 2nd, 2022. The awards is the night of the 2nd, and this is going to come around super quickly. These are our biggest events of the year and they're returning live in person after a virtual version this year. There'll be hundreds of professionals attending for keynotes, panel talks, networking, interactive workshops and of course that glitzy awards ceremony. For a full agenda, more information and to grab your tickets, please visit event.ed.net forward slash forum. That's event.ed.net forward slash forum. But that really is all for me today and all for the ED podcast for 2021. I wish you all a very happy and healthy December and New Year on behalf of the whole ED team. But for now, it really is a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.